as we continue our, sin, our series through this prophetic old book called The Gospel According to Isaiah. So turn there with me, Bible's in the back, and uh, we are in the second major section, uh, chapters 40 through 55, and uh, we know that Isaiah, by uh, revelation, inspiration, Bible says that all scriptures breathed out by God, exhaled by God himself, has been given prophecies uh, concerning the exile of God's people in Babylon in the 6th century. Um, we know in chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah was speaking and warning to God's people in the 8th century, that is his own day, and he was reminding God's people in the 8th century to repent of their covenant-breaking sins, um, fear of man, idolatry, failure to trust God, entered into some real ungodly alliances with foreign nations rather than trusting in the Lord, at chapter 1 through 39. But when we go to chapter 40, Isaiah is now speaking to a people in the 6th century, 150 or so years later, and now he has turned his prophecy to one of comfort and salvation as Jerusalem is being destroyed and God's people are being captured and brought into Babylon to live in Babylon under the king of Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. We saw that in chapter 39, verse 6 uh, of that prophecy. So we know that God's people were conquered uh, in Judah and Babylon, destroyed, brought to um, in, excuse me, in Judah from the Babylonian king and brought to Babylon to live, we know, for 70 years. We know that because history tells us, but we also know ahead of time because Jeremiah told God's people that it will happen. And then after 70 years, God will raise up a king by the name of Cyrus who is going to conquer Babylon. He's a Persian. And then God will stir his heart, Ezra chapter 1, of the king of Persia to allow God's people to go back to the promised land. God already foretold all of this through the prophet Jeremiah, other prophets, but also through the prophet Isaiah. So as we turn from chapter 39 of God speaking through Isaiah to his people in the 8th century, uh, in chapter 40, God is speaking through Isaiah to God's people in the 6th century who are in exile, on their way to exile, and living in exile. God can do that because he is uh, not in time, he's above time, and spoke to his prophet. So, God's people in the 8th century are getting his prophecy of what's going to happen. And uh, that's the 8th century. And then in the 6th century, imagine me and the people being in exile. You can open up the scroll of Isaiah and know exactly what's going on, why it happened, where we're going, and, and what's going to happen in the end. What a blessing, but not always. So all, uh, not everyone believes and not everyone trusted in God's word, although God's word is trustworthy and it will come to pass. In Isaiah, we've also learned that God has promised to his people that a king would be born. And that in chapters 1 through 39, we saw this theme of a king. In chapters 40 through 55, we see this theme of a servant, the servant of the Lord. We know that both the king and the servant is Jesus Christ, who will deliver God's people from their sin, from hell, from Satan and death. And he will establish, we learned, an eternal kingdom marked by righteousness and justice. We, as we turn to chapter 40, we learn that God, through Isaiah, we saw that God comforted his people. He gave them words of comfort as they are going into exile and, letting, and, and reminding them that even though they're going into exile, their, their sins will be forgiven, that he will reveal his glory to all flesh. He showed them his incomparable greatness and sovereignty that he has above all the nations. And for those who wait, remember chapter 40, with dependency upon the Lord that God himself will renew their strength. 
Chapter 41, God called the nations into account. He gave another word of comfort to his people, but we, if you remember last week in chapter 41, we ended with God exposing and calling into uh, account and exposing the futility of idolatry and the idols themselves. So as we turn to chapter 43 together, we'll see the first of four servant songs or the description, the theme of the servant of the Lord. There are four of them in the book of Isaiah. And who is this servant of the Lord? Well, as we look, maybe we'll see exactly why we're calling this series the gospel according to Isaiah. So we're in chapter 43, not 42. I apologize for that. And we'll see our text. And let let me just tell you up front, it's really a two-point sermon. There's three I know up there. Servant and his justice, servant and his song, and the servant and his wrath. When we get to number three, we're going to go right into our response. The band will come up and then we'll play as, um, as we end with chapter three. So really it's just a two-point uh, sermon. And uh, we'll see the servant with his justice again, the servant and the song we will sing, and then the servant and his wrath. So turn to chapter 43 with me and hear the word of the Lord as I read chapter 42. Um, I keep saying 43, I apologize. As I'm looking, I'm like, yeah, no, that's 42. I've been in it all week. Okay, chapter 42. I was right. Okay. Hear the word of the Lord, the inspired, infallible, authoritative, breathed out by God, the word of God. Chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow dim or faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for this people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and now things... And, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The Lord himself, chapter 42, verse 1. The Lord himself will introduce his servant. Behold, my servant. Behold, look, pay attention. If you notice, this is in stark contrast to what God said back in chapter 41, verses 24 and 29. If you look at that, he said, God is saying, behold, the worthlessness and the nothingness of all the idols. But now, behold, calling your attention to see and to grasp and to understand and to look and to pay attention to the servant of the Lord. But who is this servant? Who is a servant? Isaiah has already identified Israel, the people of Israel, in chapter 41, verse 8, as the servant of the Lord. 
Earlier in Isaiah, he is called the servant Isaiah. Also in Isaiah, we see servant, my servant David, my servant Eliakim. We see these people and the nation being called a servant. In fact, if you go down to chapter 42, verse 8, no, excuse me, yeah, 42, verse 8, is, is a servant of the Lord, 41, verse 8. And then in, um, later on in chapter 42, if you turn to verse 18, I believe it is. No, verse 19, who is blind but my servant? So what you see is in chapter 41, verse 8, he's calling the people servant. And here it seems like he's calling this servant who's, who's deaf, rebellious, and blind. Well, so which, who, who is this servant of the Lord then? Is it, is it Isaiah? Is it Eliakim? Is it, is it is this rebellious people? Is it, you know, Isaiah? Who, who is it? Well, as you read Isaiah, what we need to do and what needs to be done when you read about the, the references, when you read the references of the servant of the Lord, you have to look and understand it, not only its context, but the characteristics that are ascribed to the servant. When you do that, when you see the characteristics, you see the, the actual context, it will identify for us their or, or, or his identity. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 42, in three other places, 49, chapter 50, and 52, Isaiah uses four unique contexts, four unique characteristics that clearly point to the person and work of Jesus. Okay? It's clearly in its context, it's clearly in its characteristics, but also the New Testament uh, declares it for us and kind of brings it to reality or the truth of it that it's a single individual, someone that God is sent, a servant of the Lord, who will come and he will save and reign, who will save his, the people from their sins and reign over the world. God's chosen one, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the one who said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And we'll see that in this context, and we'll see it three more times in Isaiah, that Jesus is the chosen one. He is the servant of the Lord, who, look what it says, is upheld and in whom, God the Father, my soul delights. Where where have we seen that before? At Jesus' baptism. As Jesus, the Bible tells in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus' baptism, that immediately Jesus came up out of the water. And why did he come up out of the water? Because he was in the water. I say that because we're still throwing water on children. But he came up out of the water, fully immersed. He comes up out of the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We see, we see this public ministry of Jesus beginning with God's delight in him and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's just what Isaiah is talking about. Jesus did nothing apart from the will of his Father. And Jesus did nothing apart from the power of the Spirit as it rested on him for his ministry. The chosen servant will not function, Isaiah tells us, in his own strength alone. He will be supported. He will be upheld. He will be sustained by God. 
finding deep satisfaction in him and the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it would be, and, and it's very hard to miss, as you see in uh, verses 1, 3, and 4, what the mission of the servant is all about, at least in this section. We'll see as we go through servant, the servant songs, uh, the picture of the servant of the Lord. We'll see different things. But here, the mission is repeated in verses 1, 3, and 4. He will what? Bring justice to the nations. He will bring justice to the nations. The term justice implies more than just judicial fairness. It includes all the people of all culture, all society will be full of justice. Everything we are concerned of, about, all the injustices will be made right. Not just the forgiveness of sins or societal equity, but radical transformation. Listen, radical transformation back to God's original design before sin entered the world. And God foretells how through his servant, his glorious work and order will rule over the world in righteousness. And we know, family, we know from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, that this will happen only when what? A child will be born. A son will be given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the increase of his government and peace will be of no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That is why the Christians in the first century and believers today declare and witness to the reality and fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, sovereign, reigning ruler, and it is the servant of the Lord. It is the servant and through the servant of the Lord that God, that listen, that the lordship of God will be made full and manifest fully to the whole universe. Judgment will go out from Zion throughout the whole world. Christ, says Calvin, was sent in order to bring the whole world under the authority of God and under obedience to him, end quote. Now, we work in our communities towards justice, and we should. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. But let's not live in some false narrative. You've, you know, let's be honest. We're never going to have true and lasting justice as the world stands today, it's not going to happen. Doesn't mean we shouldn't work toward it. But the reality is, we are in a fallen, idolatry world. Our justice or salvation that matters will never come from our own self-assertion. It will only come when the servant of the Lord comes. We are mixed with pride and self-protection, self-wills, and will never see complete. Doesn't mean we shouldn't work toward it. But we know as Christians, as we work toward justice, that the king of justice and righteousness will come and he will establish perfect justice on the world. Maybe that's even a good motive to work toward it, knowing that someday when Christ comes, it will come in this fullness. And when it comes, yeah. But it will also show how beautiful and glorious life was supposed to be. Think about that. 
to the glory of God. How beautiful life is supposed to be. In verses, in verses two through four, we see this portrait of this servant of the Lord, gentle and humble servant Jesus. Look what he says. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice. It doesn't mean that Jesus never got loud. He had brothers and sisters. That'll tell you right there, right? It refers to his gentle, lowly heart, humble action. Jesus' ministry wasn't obnoxious, loud. Jesus' ministry wasn't boisterous, shouting people down. The spirit upon him, as he spoke, he spoke words of peace and truth to broken, hurting people. Did not anxious, was not boisterous. Another reference to the gentle character of Jesus, look at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You know anything about a reed? It is fairly fragile plant, yet if it is bruised, the servant will handle it gently. He'll not break a bruised reed. And if a wick, also known as a flak wick, was used to start a fire, if it only smokes, he's not going to quench it. Going to blow on it and, and watch it do what it's supposed to do, light the fire. I mean, think about that. Think about the description of Jesus. Soak it in. A, a, oftentimes when we are lonely, oftentimes when we are broken, oftentimes when we face trials and hardship, we feel that God may be dealing with us when our hurt, in our weaknesses, rather harshly. But the opposite is true. According to this word, God deals with us, Jesus deals with us gently. When we're hurting on the inside, like a bruised reed, he, he deals with us gently, outwardly, like the wick that can't light the fire. He is capable of, 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 of ministering to our inner hurts and supply what is necessary for all the circumstances we face. That's Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. One pastor put it this way, many of us are like the bruised reed and we need to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Others are like smoking flax and can only burn brightly for the Lord. Again, when we are drenched in oil with a constant supply coming as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, end quote. Jesus is gentle with your brokenness. Jesus is gentle with my hurts but that doesn't mean he is unable to bring justice to the world verse 3b and 4 he'll faithfully and truthfully bring justice to the world he will not faint look nor be discouraged the the servant of the lord is gentle but he is not weak isn't it wonderful to know that jesus does not get discouraged you ever been discouraged listen if I was the only human on the planet, just myself, I would be discouraged with me. But Jesus, with all that he does, all the obstacles to overcome, all the wickedness on the earth, never becomes discouraged. I can be discouraged. In fact, the word discouraged comes from the same Hebrew word of, as bruise. In a bruised reed, he will not break. The servant of the Lord, in the servant of the Lord, there, there are no bruises in him. 
He is able to fulfill the task of redemption and justice. He is free from the weakness and failures and discouragements that we face all the time. That's the servant of the Lord. There's no possibility of him growing weak or faint, not fulfilling his task, not being stopped from outside forces or inner realities. He will not fail. He will establish. And look what it says. All the coastlines, coastlands shall wait for his law. They will wait for his instruction. It won't be their instruction. It'll be the servant of the Lord. He, he will work. And his work as a servant will extend the whole earth. Distant coastlands, uh, coastlands will serve and obey him. The only hope is the servant of the Lord. The only hope for this world lies in the work of the servant of the Lord, the delight of God, the beloved of God, the healer, the one who exercised the only true power to transform hearts, to reorder humanity. And he doesn't do it by bullying, by shouting people down. He does it by suffering. He doesn't do it by forcing his demands upon you. He does it by absorbing our sins on himself and taking on the sorrows and discouragements of his people. Behold, that's Jesus. Now, in verses 5 through 9, something interesting happens. God is not speaking about his servant, but he's speaking to his servant. Verse 5. The one who, who is calling this servant to establish God's loving order on, on the earth is the creator of the world. He is incomparable with the idols who we saw earlier in 41, are nothing, are delusional. He spreads out the earth. That, that's a, a poetic uh, a Hebrew uh, term that really talks about all the eye can see. It's spread out. It's not talking about a, a flat earth. He's talking about it's spread out. All the eye that can see that God has done that. And he breathes breath into his people. He has the right to oversee all the universe. He maintains care for it and all the residents. He gives them breath. He gives them life. Verse 5. Verse 6 and 7 we see again the purpose of the calling of God's chosen servant. First we see in verse 6 I the Lord. Got any question about who's calling the servant? Verse 6 will tell you I am the Lord. The covenant one. The eternal one. The self-existent one. I called you. In righteousness. God's own essential righteousness. The servant's mission is rooted and grounded in the righteousness of God. Is at the right time, in the right place, for the right purpose, with absolute, perfect, righteous justice. God is just, and his servant will act in a way in accordance with the righteous judgment of God. That's what he's saying. He'll carry out his mission in righteousness and in love. And those who redeemed will experience the, the presence of the Lord forever. And those who reject him will experience eternal punishment. Righteous judgment will come. And I will take you by the hand and keep you. Six. This tender expression. I will, I will take you by the hand. As you, as you are, are, are you know, living out the mission that you've been sent to. God will sustain you. I will, I will hold your hand through all trials and temptations. All the hate. All the rejection. I will take you by the hand. Beautiful description of God reminding the servant of the Lord. Luther said that God would hold a servant by the hand 
namely for this reason, that Satan and the world with all their might and wisdom will resist thy work. And God will take him through his mission. And I will give you as a covenant of the people. That's an interesting phrase. It's not speaking just about a covenant. It is speaking of the servant of the Lord as the covenant, identifying him as a covenant, like, like I am the resurrection and the life. That, that the covenant is embodied in the person and work of Jesus. He's the mediator of the covenant. He's embodied him in of the covenant. He is the root and the origin of the covenant. And God sovereignly dispenses to man his blessing of salvation through Christ, who is the new covenant, when he gave his life, he died on the cross, his body was broken, his blood was shed. God the Father made his son to be covenant for the people and a light to the nations so that the eyes of the blind may be opened and prisoners released from the dungeons. Okay? Not talking, we're talking dungeons and darkness of sin. Punishment of sin. A brokenness of sin. He doesn't just open physical eyes. He's what? He, he is the light of the world, right? He illuminates our souls to see the beauty and glory of God forever. And although Satan has, has kept sinners bound in prison, in the prison of sin with chains that we cannot break, Christ here, the servant of the Lord, has rendered them completely impotent to stop him from rescuing his people from the dominion of darkness and transferring them into the eternal kingdom of his beloved son. Right? We saw that in Colossians chapter 1. Have you been released? Have you been released from the bondage of sin? Have you been released from the darkness of sin? Have you been freed from the power and the penalty of sin through the covenantal blood of Jesus? He promises that. He gives that to us as a servant of the Lord. It is the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name, who has chosen his servant. He is the one eternal God who entered into covenant with his people. His works, his promise, and truth stands unchangeable as the servant of the Lord in whom he delights will bring justice and salvation to his people and deliver them from bondage. And therefore, he's not going to give his glory to anyone. See that? Verse 8, I'm the Lord, my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise, the former thing, excuse me, nor my praise to carved idols, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the essential reality of God, the infinite value and worth of God, which is his alone, which he possesses in and of himself. We have finite glory. He has infinite glory. Were God to give his glory to another, listen, if God were to give his glory to another, he would deny himself. He would deny his own nature, which is impossible. His glory as creator, redeemer is inalienable. It cannot be shared, transferred to someone else or taken away. And because he transcends all creation, he says the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. You know what he's saying? What I've said in the past has come, you've seen it, and now what I say will happen in the future, you know will happen. Why? Because what I've already said has come true. How many times we find ourselves, and I am very much included in this, going around the block and seeing the same street corner. God, you've been faithful. (laughs) 
uh, just looking back and seeing your faithfulness, O Lord, to me. That should propel us to be trusting, to to rest, to, to believe for the future. God knows the past and the future. He knows Cyrus will come. He knows the Messiah will happen. Listen, remember in chapter 41, uh, verse 21, he calls out the idols. Like, tell us what happened. You know the future. You know, tell us if you're an idol. They had no answer. It's reminding us that we're not locked into some fate or some kinds of inevitable circumstances. For God's glory lies in the capacity that he knows the past. He knows the future. The idols do not. And, and let, me, let me just mention this again, a short bunny trail. We did it last week. I think it's important when these passages come up. This passage here reveals to you and to me the deity of Christ. Here the Lord said in Isaiah, he will not give, he will not share his glory and praise with anyone. But according to, Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 1 in the New Testament, he says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, I was with you. I'm eternal like you. I get that. Not in the manger. That wasn't my beginning. But he's also saying in that glory, that eternal, infinite glory in the past, bring it. Glorify me in that presence. Now think about that. Does that mean that now God is sharing his glory with Jesus? That Isaiah don't know what he's talking about? Or that somehow God is a liar? Absolutely not. You know what that means? The only answer is, it is the same unshared glory that Jesus has. It is the same unshared glory that Jesus is talking about. There is one God. Eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is one in essence, co-equal, co-eternal, yet three in person. If Jesus were not God in the flesh, these things could not be said. One glory, one God. I'm not sharing it. I'm not giving it to anyone. It's not shared. It belongs to the one God that we worship. The servant and his justice. Now we see the servant and the song, verses 10 through 17. Sing, the word of God tells us. And Ricky did, Pastor Ricky did a great job picking out songs that talk about singing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. Let the village that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I've held my peace, God says. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant, pants. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, 
and do not forsake them. Verse 17, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Now, notice verse 9. Notice verse 9, he says, new things I declare. Now notice verse 10. Sing to the Lord a what? New song. The section is showing us that, that, that this is all about a, a worldwide response, our response, to God. And all that he has declared and he has determined to achieve through this new work of the ministry of the servant. The song is, is new for it is celebrating the things that God will accomplish. The response, Isaiah says, is singing and praising God. And singing of a new song is not... Hey, if you, have, if you have nothing to do, you know, why don't you just sing a new song? It's an imperative. Sing, it's a command. Okay? It's a command. The song is to be addressed to the Lord, who alone is holy, other, different from the helpless idols. He alone uh, can bring to pass all that is promised. And now the whole world is said to, to join in the singing and the worshiping of God for his son, the servant of the Lord who is the gospel, and these songs are fitting, they're new, they're celebrating the wonders and the beauty and the new age of the servant of the Lord who, who comes, who will perform justice, who will bring salvation and redemption. The songs of the redeemed. The songs of those who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. A new manifestation to see the power and glory and goodness calls forth new fitting songs to sing. Family, when we, when we see... When, 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 we, when we understand, when we taste, when we treasure the, this, the greatest work of grace in the gospel, when, when unbelief falls away and our hearts melt into gladness, we erupt into singing and praising who God is and what God has done. That's true worship, a response of his revelation to us. That's why churches, we have open public worship services. We welcome the coastlands, the whole world, the farthest uh, uh, seas and the nearest coast, to the deserts, to the interior. The cities are commanded to lift up their voices. Verse 12, all the world will sing. I think Isaiah's getting a glimpse of chapter 6, verse 3. The whole world is filled with my glory as one called out to one another, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with, my, with his glory. We have to give glory to God. God has opened the door now to the world, to idolaters from all cultures to turn to him so they can experience something new, something worthy, something praiseworthy in a new song in the work of Christ. Mott, you had a commentary, says, always a new song responds to a fresh realization or a fresh display of the goodness of God. Amen. Now notice here something that can be missed. In this singing, we're talking about singing. I know worship is all of life. We're talking about singing. That there's a vertical and a horizontal, right? A vertical and a horizontal expression of worship, right? We're commanded to sing. We're commanded to ascribe God the glory that is due him. Verse 12, to declare his praise. But there's a joining of the people here as well. The nations gathering to lift up their voices, right? Habitants sing for joy. Let them, sh- let them shout from the mountain. Let them, them gathering people, God's people, sing and give glory to the Lord. 
What that tells us is as we, as we gather together and we witness the gracious and, and marvelous and spectacular hand of God, as we witness something beyond ourselves, we taste of the grace of God, and we stand in awe, mesmerized by the life-giving, life-power, grace of God in the gospel, we can't keep it to ourselves. We have to express it. Sing. When we see the holiness of God, when we taste the glory of God, His infinite worth, and truly experience that the wrath we deserve was placed on our substitute, who didn't deserve it. Our hearts are stirred in affection of God. And then it could never truly resonate until it is expressed with each other. Again, C.S. Lewis, praise not merely expresses the emotion. Praise not merely expresses the emotion from the experience, but completes the enjoyment of the experience. Isn't that true? Can't, we can't wait to tell people things, good news and wonderful things that bring us great joy. We want to tell it to others. We tell things that happen, and it kind, of, it kind of completes the enjoyment of something. Our response to God's incredible grace and goodness and deliverance in the gospel should be met with and responded with joyful shouting and singing and declaring the gospel to one another. Imagine how strange it would be if, if, you're, if you're, your spouse, your child, someone you deeply love is cured of a disease that they were going to die from and there was no joy at all. Not helpful, not, not healthy either. God created us for joy and to express that joy with praise. And verse 13 gives us another reason, a fuller reason, why the praise and the call to sing and God one day will arise. Look what he says. God one day will arise as a mighty warrior and overcome his enemies. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foe. This meek and mild Jesus should not be thought of as someone who lacks power, might, zeal. For the time will come and the time has come that the seed of the woman has bruised and crushed the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. The battle of the ages will take place. The time of ignorance has passed and the fullness has come. God sent forth his son, the chosen servant, to deliver his people. Yeah, Cyrus will come and deliver his people, but more mightily when Jesus comes, lives that perfect life and dies on the cross and rises from the dead and delivers and accomplishes redemption and then ultimately returns to earth to defeat all his foes. God is calling to sing and to praise him for all that he is and all that he's done in the gospel with each other. But I think there's another element. I think that's, that's implied here. Another, another element, horizontal element of worship, I think that is applied. Psalm 40, verse 3 says this. He, David says, put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. New song of, mouth, song of praise to my God. Then David says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The gospel should also motivate us to share the good news of Christ as we experience the fullness and the redemption of God. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church, messed up church, about worship. And he gets to chapter 14, he's, you, know, you, know, you know the book, it's talking about spiritual gifts. And, and when he gets to chapter 14, he says, listen, Worship in such a way 
that when unbelievers enter in, he's expecting unbelievers to walk in, the secrets of his hearts will be revealed or their hearts will be revealed. And as a result, they will fall down, face, they will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. Now, I realize that we gather together primarily for the worship of our God, to love, to honor, to worship him, to be instructed in his word, to build one another up. But it's also an opportunity for those who are maybe here, have not come to faith. Maybe you're a skeptic or a seeker by enabling grace of God. God is drawing you here. And you see the worship of God's people and you say, God is among you. And maybe we can be used as a catalyst to draw you into, well, the Spirit of God is drawing you into, but as a people just gathering and worshiping the Lord, giving praise to his name, glorifying him and all that he is and all that he has done. When God's people experience the presence of God, They meet God together. Lives are changed and people are drawn in. Praise him, worship him. Verse 14, I kept silent, but now I'm not gonna be silent anymore. I'm gonna cry out. Like like a woman who gives birth, God's silence can be misunderstood that he don't care or it's never gonna happen or his judgment may not come. Second Peter says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Talking about the end, judgment, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why was God patient toward you today? If you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have not responded to the gospel, you've not acknowledged your sin and your separation from God, and only remedy is Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his, his rising from the dead, his sacrifice as your only payment for sin. Why, is he, why are you here and why is God patient with you? I'll tell you. Not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God wants you to repent. And turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ. That's why you're here. That's why God has been patient with you. But there's going to come a day when nothing in all of creation will resist him from acting. And judgment will come. The mountains and hills will lay waste. He's coming to judge sinners. It'll be uh, it's so devastating. Look what it says. The, the wind will blow, will dry up vegetation. However, he says in verse 16, there'll be those who are blind in the storm, but he will, he, will, he will bring them safely. He'll remove the darkness so that there's light. And he'll, he'll remove the rough places so that they will be made smooth. And this, is, this is a promise. Look at verse 16 again. I will lead the blind. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. These are the things I do. And I do not forsake them. No man can do that. No idol can do that, but God can do that. And God will confront his foes, verse 17. Those who stubbornly hold on to their false gods. God will deliver them, uh, deliver his people, but he will bring disgrace and shame for the idolaters. Look what it says. And, and you know why? It's just it, this, this mixing. We've seen this before. We've seen this before. That, that God's work of salvation is twofold. Judgment for idolaters who ultimately put their trust really in themselves, and salvation for God's people when judgment comes. Ortland writes, the chief miracle in the universe when God, listen, when God takes a compulsive idolater and transforms them into a joyful worshiper of himself alone. Family, we trust God, and when we trust God, we know we love the giver of the gifts more than the gifts themselves. We worship God when we love the giver more than the pleasures he allows. We sing and praise God when we see in the gospel 
Our ultimate delight is in Christ, even in hard times. And our joys of this life are just one more reason to give him glory and enjoy him forever. Could we say with Job, the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away? What, what if God were to take, you fill in the blank. What if God were to take, you fill in the blank. I, there, there are things that will deeply hurt us, and they should. But there are things that will devastate us, that will unravel and dis- disintegrate us because we have trusted in those things and not in our God. To worship, to sing, to see the beauty and glory of Christ is to see the richness and the satisfaction and the glory of Christ to be filled with a sense of awe, gratitude, and thanksgiving. We actually will see the beauty of Christ. Jonathan Edwards said this, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations that are here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are streams, but God is the fountain. They are drops, but God is the ocean. How beautiful is that? Now, as we get to this last, I'll just say a couple of words, and then I'll call the band up in a couple of minutes. In verses 1 through 4, the servant of the Lord brings perfection, justice, beauty, glory. Verse 18 to 25, the servant fails. You have your Bibles open. You have the words are up there. Well, which one are we talking about? What servant? I mentioned earlier. Well, verse 24 is the clue. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? He's talking about the nation of Israel here. He switches from, from the servant of the Lord being Jesus Christ. He's talking about the nation of Israel, that they were blind to the purposes. They were deaf to God's word. They failed their mission. In verses 1 through 9, we see the beauty and glory of Jesus. Verse 18 through 25, we're looking around at Israel, and they have not done what they've called to do. And they're wondering, why, do we, why are we in Babylon? Why were we destroyed? Why were we destroyed? Look at verse 20. He sees many things, but does not observe them. He hears. His ears are open, but he does not hear. In other words, he's saying, what's going on? Were you powerless, Lord, to, to stop the Babylonians to come? No, of course not. God sent them. God sent them. Israel's mission, I love this verse too. Look, you have your Bibles open. We turn the page here. Look at verse 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we sinned? Why are we here? What happened? We sinned against the Lord. It was the Lord that did it. Right? So who gave us up? Isaiah answers it. Was it not the Lord? We have sinned. In whose ways they have not walked and whose law they would not obey. Family, let me tell you, God gave Israel the law of God to show forth the world that God is worthy of worship, right? That God is worthy of worship. It was, it was a way in which God was to give Israel their mission to show the world how beautiful it is to live for and to wait on and to serve and obey the Lord. But they failed. They didn't walk in his way. And in love, God chastised them. God chastised them, wanting them to come back to the Lord. Look at verse 25 and we'll close. This is the chastisement of God. So, he, God, poured on him, the servant of the Lord, the nation of Israel, the heat of his anger. 
and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Now, band, you can come up, and I want you to, everybody, just give me two minutes as the band comes up. He poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire around him, but he did not understand. It burned him up, and he did not take it to heart, okay? Follow me now, okay? One more minute. I want to end our time looking at that verse, but also looking back at verse 6. He says that the father will take the servant by his hand and keep him, right? Beautiful expression that God will sustain his servant through trials and difficulties, temptation, loneliness, hate, and rejection. He will take him by the hand. And as true as that is, there was a moment in time, there was a moment in history where God let go and turned his back on the servant of the Lord. And this passage here, verse 25, gives us the clue. While Jesus was on the cross, as the Father poured out his wrath, the heat of his anger on his servant Jesus, he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the burning hot wrath of God, the justice of God, the greater than any fire, came down on him as he died for our sins, paying the ultimate price by giving his life for us as our substitute. He lost the Father's hand so that you will never, ever be alone. He drank the cup of wrath so that we could have the Father's love. He cried out, I thirst on the cross so we will never thirst again. Isaiah will say of this suffering servant in chapter 53 that Jesus, the suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for an hour iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's our suffering servant. Let us, let us admit our need this morning. Let us delight and sing about the grace of God, about the remedy of the gospel for our sins. And let us humble ourselves before him and give ourselves permission to experience and to drink and to taste and to experience the grace of God in the gospel. Behold your servant Jesus. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? The band's going to lead us through a song called Jesus is Better. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand. Upon this rock I will stand. Glory, glory, we have no other king. Will you sing that? Let's stand together. And, and let's worship the servant of the Lord who came, who heals who, who, who is gentle and lowly yet who is powerful and will establish justice, who gave his life as a new covenant, an offering of his body, his broken body, his blood was shed, buried and rose from the dead. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? I pray you do. And if you have never come to faith, now's the day. Today's the day. Trust him as we pray and as we sing. Turn your life to Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this beautiful description that you've given us about your son. And, and Lord, centuries ago, when Isaiah wrote it, they didn't see as we see, as we have your word, the New Testament, Lord. We see even more of the beauty of the servant of the Lord today. So help us to worship. Help us to praise him. Help us to give him thanks and to worship him in spirit and truth all that he has done, all that he will do. 
for your glory and the joy of your people, we pray. Amen.